Hi, I'm Shay, and welcome to Kombucha and Color. Kombucha and Color is a weekly podcast hosted by me, Shay Dyer, a yoga teacher and creative graphic designer, and Anna Marsh, a functional medicine practitioner and women's health coach with a love of all things health and fitness. This podcast is here to inspire women to embrace health and live life bright. You can find more about me, Shay, at shaydyer.com. You can find out more about me, Anna, at annamarshnutrition.co.uk. And each week we will be bringing you inspiring content for a healthier and happier mind, body, heart, and soul. Hi, it's Shay here. Take a moment right now to reflect on how you measure a successful day for yourself. For a long time, I measured the success of my day based on the number of Instagram likes or followers I gained, the money I made, or the amount of love or praise I received. Whilst these are wonderful things to desire, using them as a metric of success left me feeling really depleted. It was only after some honest soul searching that I've truly shifted my metrics so that now I define my success on whether I'm able to answer yes to the following three questions. Have I moved my body today? Have I breathed or sat in stillness today? Have I created something today? Move, breathe, create. When I focus on these as measures of a successful day, I am able to really slow down, get out of the busyness of my head, back into my body, and manifest things from a really authentic place. What's even crazier is that when I focus on these three things, all the other shiny pennies, the money, the praise, the followers, the likes, they all flow into my life with such ease as a result of me being in an energized, calm, creative, and aligned state. It's completely changed my outlook on life, and it's made me a much happier person. I really want to share all my tools with you so that you too can manifest the things you want in your life from this energized, calm, creative, and aligned state and feel really happy whilst doing it. Come and join me at movebreathecreate.com, where you will find ways to energize your body and calm your mind, along with creative tutorials and techniques to get you into that creative, manifesting state. Most yoga studio monthly memberships cost upwards of £100 a month, and you can join me over at movebreathecreate.com, where you can find not only yoga practices and tutorials, but also workbook downloads, community, meditations, soul work, journal ideas, creative prompts, and inspiration, all for less than £10 a month. It's like your own personal yoga retreat space. Come connect back to your body, mind, and soul with me at movebreathecreate.com. I look forward to seeing you inside of the community. Welcome to another episode of Kombucha and Color. I'm Shay, and as always, I have Anna with me. And today on the show, we have a very special guest all the way from South Africa, Sam Beck Bessinger. And she is here to talk to us about money. She is the author <laughs> of Manage Your Money Like a Fucking Grown Up. And mm-hmm. she describes herself as a self 
self-proclaimed money dork, which <laughs> I don't know, I have been wanting to record a podcast on money um, for quite a while because it's such a fundamental part of our human existence and human experience. But there's also so much that's tied up in the emotional side of money and the energetic exchange that happens when we have transactions with money. And there's just a lot of like juicy stuff that's linked and connected to our attachments to money and wealth. So Sam, welcome to the show. I'm so pleased to talk about all of these things. I really fight for the term money dork because I feel like I had to learn so many hard lessons in my own life to like earn that label. <laughs> but now, now I finally feel like someone who, you know, I've spent a lot of the last five years, I'd say, really just thinking and obsessing about our relationship to money as humans after spending the first probably 30 years of my life desperately trying to never think about money. <laughs> so yeah, and I think it's been such a journey to get to the point where I feel like I am in control of my own money life. So I feel like I've really fought for my money dork label. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to share a little bit about that journey for, your, for, sure. for us and for listeners who maybe don't know? Yeah. So, I mean, I grew up in one of those families where we talked about everything around the dinner table. We were talk about sex, we talk about politics, spirituality, everything. There was nothing taboo except for one thing, which was that we never, ever, ever spoke about money. And the only memories I have of my mum specifically ever talking about money was basically crying about it. It was just something that I associated with anxiety, just seeing my mom being stressed and anxious and sad. And as a result of that, I kind of went into my 20s with this rock solid financial strategy, which was never think about it, <laughs> which turned out to be a terrible financial strategy. And I've always thought about someone who, you know, I'm not very materially motivated. I'm a creative person. I always wanted to be a writer. I realized actually what I was doing was also avoiding something that made me feel very anxious, honestly. But for many years, I just kind of hid from it. But then this weird thing started happening, which is I realized that it's in my 20s, I had a very sort of serious growing up corporate job because I was very scared of never having money because I'd seen how anxious it made my mom. So I was like, I'm going to make lots of money. But then the irony was every year I worked, I realized I was more broke. Because the more I worked, the more stressed I was, the more empty my life felt, the more I felt like I had to fill that hole and stroke my own ego and kind of prop up myself with these things. And eventually at its worst, I realized I'd been working for nearly a decade and I was more than 300,000 rand in debt. So that's like, I don't know what, like 30,000 pounds. I was in a deep, deep debt hole. And there was one day I was driving home from work. And I was working in a job that I hated and I was in a relationship that was making me really unhappy, but honestly felt like I couldn't leave, like I couldn't afford to leave. There was just so many things together that were making me feel so trapped and like I was living someone else's life. And I pulled my car off the road one day coming home from work and I caught myself having the thought that the only way I could think of to get out of debt would be to just kill myself. Which sounds overdramatic, but actually there's a lot of data that shows that financial stress is the leading predictor of suicide attempts. And I'm so grateful that that happened to me because I heard myself having that thought. And that was, for me, the moment where I realized that by never thinking about it and hiding from it, money had ended up controlling every decision of my life. And that it was only by actually learning how the system works and, and having a plan that was better than never think about it, just frantically try and earn more money and plug the hole, that that was the only way that I could be in control of my own life and living a life that was more purposeful and living a life that was actually the life I wanted to be living and not one that honestly was motivated by terror and anxiety and fear. 
And that for me is kind of the journey that I went on. And then when I went and really made an effort to learn about how does money work, what was the most shocking and surprising thing to me is how incredibly simple it is. I felt so liberated by that knowledge that I kind of felt very motivated to come back and share that specifically with younger people. So I spend most of my time now talking to people in their early 20s, talking to university students, really just talking honestly and openly about money in a way that I wish someone had spoken to me so that it hadn't become this thing, this space of terror and anxiety and fear. And I could learn that actually you don't have to be a hardcore business type person. You don't have to be one of these like people that I always thought of in my head as being like investment bros um, who are just the worst kinds and they care about cars and whatever to, you know, really be purposeful with your money and to have a plan, plan for it, you know, and find a way to make it serve you and serve your life because it's not actually that hard. So that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I absolutely love that. And what resonates for me is this idea of money being connected to your sense of safety. You know, you said that you had the struggle of not wanting to leave this relationship because there was safety, because there was money probably with your partner or how that was invested in your relationship together as a unit. And from what we know and teach in the chakra system and the yoga energetics, like your root chakra is often associated with our connection to money, which is our sense of safety and our sense of really that feeling of grounding. Um, so I love that you referenced that. So when you talk to university students and you're going around doing talks, what is the main messaging that you like to give people? What did you wish that you had heard? So, I mean, I think there were a lot of big revelations for me. The first thing was understanding that we all have more choices in our lives with money than we think we do. The thought experiment that I like to use is to actually just stop for a moment and do a bit of a visualization exercise about how much money you're actually likely to earn over your lifetime. Like how many rands or pounds or dollars are actually going to pass through your hands over your lifetime? Because when you do the math on this, it's often an astronomically big number, like much, much larger than most people intuitively think. And if you actually sit and you think about every single note, every single pound or every single 10 rand that flows through, each single note is a piece of possibility, really, because money can buy anything. That's kind of what's powerful about it. And yet for so many people, we go through our lives with money flowing through and we don't have that sense of agency where we say, and we understand like, actually, I have a lot to work with. If I'm quite deliberate about really figuring out what really matters to me and I can redirect that energy to what I do care about. Actually, we all have a lot more power than we kind of intuitively think we do. And the problem though, is that if we're not very deliberate about money, it has this incredible ability or tendency to just flow through, just to vanish because the world is full of voices telling us what we need. I think this, this kind of difference between wants and needs is really interesting. I used to work in this on my mission to like, I want to understand everything about money now. I worked for an app company that designs apps that helps you figure out where your money's going. So in South Africa, it was called 227. It's similar to Mint or YNAB or, you know, one of these money tracking apps. And what was really interesting, so I spent a lot of time, I was a user experience designer, which meant I spent a lot of time sitting with people and understanding our mental models. Like how do we intuitively think about our money and categorize it? Because we wanted to build systems that, that kind of showed them in that way. And I did this exercise with, I think, nearly 200 people, right? Where I got them to write down transactions on little post-it, little sticky notes, and put them into piles. So sort them out however makes sense to them, and then to label those piles. 
And what was really interesting to me is that almost everyone I asked to do this exercise did exactly the same thing. When I asked them to do that, they made a pile of things they called needs and a pile of things they called wants. And the needs were like these really standard, boring bills, house, car, whatever, you know, and they're pretty much the same. And when people started talking about their wants, that's when their eyes would light up and they would talk about their passions or their weird hobbies or spending time with their families or, you know, these really beautiful, meaningful things about their lives. And yet when we would talk then about budgeting, what does it mean to you to be financially responsible or financially in control? Almost everyone would start saying, well, you know, I feel really guilty that I'm spending so much money on all of these nice things that make my life meaningful. You know, I should be better about my needs. But, you know, if you really look at it, most of where people's money is going typically, like 80% or more is into those needs, right? And if you really interrogate those needs, often what you find is that those are the things that you are told you have to have. They're not the things that the desires that kind of come up for you innately. It's not to say that you don't need a place to live, right? But it's very easy for us to buy too much house, too much car, too much of these things. And often these are not the things that really give our lives meaning. They're just the things that feel like, cool, we're following the script of adulthood. And I find it really powerful to really sit with people with their budgets when they say, I'm feeling stretched. I'm feeling like, you know, there's no room for the things that I want. Often the problem is not that you're spending too much money on sushi or girls nights out or, you know, whatever the fun things are in your life. Often the problem is there's too much money vanishing into your house or there's too much money vanishing into your bills. These things that are probably not actually bringing you joy. They're the things that you're told that you need by other people. So yeah, I mean, I guess that for me is the big thing is like, you actually have choice. You have to be quite deliberate and you have to actually sit with yourself and understand what those things are that do give you meaning, which is the hard part. I think that was overall the thing that I learned is that the hard part about money isn't money. Turns out investing is really simple. Turns out understanding compound interest is really easy. Turns out that there aren't that many things you need to do to ensure that you have enough money in your retirement parts, you know, like these the basic things, the things that I'd avoided thinking about for 10 years. Honestly, you can learn all of those basic principles in an afternoon. The hard part about money is not money. The hard part about money is mastering yourself and learning to tune out all the voices of people telling you what your life should look like and actually rather directing that money into what really matters to you. Mm. Yeah. That's incredible because I think that's part of what makes money exactly so challenging is it's um, readjustment of your own value system. Mm -hmm. So I know you were in this big corporate job and then you left to go freelancing. What practical things or processes did you have to work through in order to reestablish that value system for yourself? Mm -hmm. How can people take a practical action to really redefine what is of importance and of value to mm. them. So, I mean, I think that's the easiest and the hardest thing, right? I don't think any of us are ever done with that challenge, but I think building some habits around sitting with yourself with those questions, living with those questions um, is something that I think practically has been very helpful for me. I have a couple of sort of cycles that I use and that I talk about in my book. I recommend about every six months kind of doing a big zoom out plan, really. You know, there are templates. I have a spreadsheet that, you know, is available online that you can work through. I don't think it's the spreadsheets that really matter. I think it's the process of sitting down and just thinking about the big picture, thinking about what are you earning and where is it going? 
And then I have sort of more granular sort of sub steps within that. So every week I sit and I do a little weekly review where I basically just audit my spending and I do a bit of an emotional audit of my spending. So it's a very simple process with green and red. So I look at all of the expenses and I just try to color code them in a very simple way of like this brought meaning to my life or it didn't. And that's the graph I have is proportion of red versus green. And I like, I like trying to improve that over time. And then I have a monthly cycle, uh, which I call my big money monthly review, which I do with my partner. The main number that I look at there is something that I call my savings ratio, my savings rates. And saving is really important to me because I have figured out what saving is for in my life. It's very hard to motivate yourself to save if it's just this like I don't know, this responsibility thing. You're like, I should save because that's what responsible people do. That's bullshit. Like it's really difficult to motivate yourself with that. So for me, like I realized that the thing that matters the most to me is I'm very greedy about my time. I am very conscious of the fact that I'm going to die one day and that my time is valuable. And I know that what I want to spend that time doing is I want to write stories because that's what I love. So I've managed to translate my saving into like a personal currency. And there's a fun rule of thumb about this, which is every 300 rand or pounds you have in a savings account basically translates to a one rand income per month for the rest of your life forever. You know, So I like to think about my savings in that kind of personal currency and think about how much time have I bought myself to do this thing that matters more to me. And that's very motivating. So I think something that matters is to find your personal currency, you know, which means actually going and pricing your dreams a little bit. You know, if you have always dreamed about, I don't know, owning a houseboat and sailing around Iceland, you know, go and figure out how much that costs. It's probably less than you think. And having that kind of very tangible number in your head really brings that savings rate, those hard rands and cents or or pounds and pence numbers that you're looking at, really brings those things to life because you can think about it in terms of what matters to you. Because money is just money, right? It's what we can trade it in for, what we can turn it into, what dreams we can fund that makes it motivating. So you sort of just have to go and price one of those and then it can work as your personal currency, whatever that is. That's entirely unique to you though. Yeah, I love how you said that because one of the sayings we use a lot on the show is like where your focus goes, energy flows. And I think when we're looking at money, there's a lot of shame attached to money, which means that people don't want to look at it. And like you described, it actually gave me goosebumps when you were talking about it in the beginning, how it was the one thing you didn't want to look at and you realized it was controlling everything. And so when you have this clarity, this vision, you've attached your purpose to the end goal or whatever you want to call it, then you have to gain clarity. You have to start to shine light on the thing that was perhaps shameful. Mm. Um, and that allows you to break free from you know, some of the hold it has over you. But for someone taking that very first step where money is just very shameful, it's something they're very fearful of looking yeah. at. What would you maybe suggest as an initial starting point to an initial step? So I think you've actually said it, which is to start looking at it. So the first step that I usually recommend to people is to install an app. And there are a number of them. It doesn't matter which one you use. That will start automatically tracking your spending. 
and categorize it for you. And I recommend people when you're starting out to just be like quite gentle with yourself and not try to change everything all at once and make that your entire goal is to start getting comfortable with looking at and understanding your own spending and just give yourself a month or two months to just do that and just make a date with yourself to go and look at those numbers once a week and try to get through that judgment and that blame and just start to understand. There's a process as well that I think is very helpful of also just doing a basic list of all of your debts and all of your assets and getting comfortable with that as well. So that's step one for me is to start to look. So to stop hiding. I used to do this thing when I was at my brokest and poorest and worst in debt, where every time I'd go draw cash from the ATM machine, I would scrumple up the slip before I could see what my balance was because I was like, and really the first and hardest step is just like doing that emotional work of getting past this, like, this is terrifying. I have messed up. I have failed. And just getting to the point of like, I'm just going to observe this. I'm just going to get comfortable sitting in the space where I can think about this and without judging myself, you can't move from there. And you also can't make decisions really practically about how to change your spending unless you know what that spending is. Mm. So I think, you know, you, you said, put light on the things that are shameful to you. And I think that's it, right? So that's the first step is just install that app, make a date with yourself to sit and actually work through it. can be something that's, you know, depending on your relationship with your partners, it can be a great process to do with them. Actually yeah. go through and try and, and support each other and, and actually talk about where things are going right now. That's step one, I think. Everything else flows from that, you know? Everything, like working out a, a savings plan and figuring out like which debt you should pay down first. All of those things are actually quite simple. Again, there are flow charts you can use. It's all very rational. Like I do think there is a step, there's a stage in learning some basic principles. I think there are sort of five or six basic principles I think you need to have a working knowledge of. Understanding inflation is one that we overlook, but it's actually one of the most powerful forces in our lives, but it's quite important. Especially in South Africa. Well, so much inflation <laughs> like a million percent, but everywhere. Um, inflation, understanding compound interest, which is the converse of that, understanding how powerful it is to save over a long period of time to invest in your life as a long haul and to step out of sort of very short-term thinking and how much of a superpower that is, like how things that you think you probably can't afford actually are very affordable if you think about them over a long enough timeline and you invest. Yeah, so I mean, there are some very simple basic principles you can honestly pick up a couple of books, read a couple of blogs, it's fine. But most of that work, as I said, money isn't the hard part about money. The hard work is the emotional work. Step one is just, as you said, putting light on it, just installing the app and starting to sit with yourself and understand your own behavior. Each week we get incredible feedback about our episodes of Kombucha and Color. We know our show is touching, inspiring, and helping hundreds of women, and we would like to reach even more. Can you help? You can help other women find the inspiration that you have found if you head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. If you screenshot your review and share it on Instagram stories or your Instagram feed tagging myself, Anna, Shay, or kombucha and color will send you a wonderful restful yoga nidra practice to download so you can find some peace and calm in your day or a better night's sleep at night 
Additionally, everyone who enters and leaves a review and shares it on Instagram will be put into a lucky prize draw to win a copy of my Beat the Bloat guide and Shay's yoga guide. You can love your body from the inside out with 174 pages, including over 100 pages of recipes, which walk you through my 28-day digestive reset process. This is perfect if you want to reset your body, address any unwanted health symptoms, or support your skin, hormones, energy, and digestion. Shay's 173-page yoga guide includes 116 pages of detailed pose analysis. It will give you all the tools you need to teach yourself yoga so you can sequence, practice, and flow safely in your very own home. Remember, all you need to do is go to iTunes, leave a five-star review, screenshot the review, and share it on Instagram stories or your Instagram feed, tagging myself, Anna underscore Marsh underscore Nutrition, Shay at Indie Yoga Life, or Kombucha and Color, Kombucha underscore and underscore Color. Head on over and do that right now before you forget, and then your yoga nidra practice will be on its way. I'd love to just touch on the concept of enoughness Mm. because uh, like, as you've been talking, I've been thinking about like my own patterns and you know, what I'm aware of within myself. And I've actually always been the person with the spreadsheet Mm. looking like always shining lights, always shining lights, always shining lights. But the story that I've always run being like, I always like to say, I've never had a real job. So I've never had that guaranteed paycheck each month, which allows you to budget and plan for the Mm. future. So my story has always been like, is there going to be enough or there's never enough or like, I don't know if there's going to be enough. And so, you know, it would be lovely. Like, I don't know, just if you have any tools Mm. or um, anything that you wanted to express, which is related to this concept of enoughness Mm. for someone like me, I'm still here, still breathing, still have a roof over my head, food on my plate, actually have a very nice life. But even with all of these things, there's still this feeling of like, Mm is this all going to get yeah. pulled out from underneath sure. me and is there always going to be enough? Yeah, I know. And I really relate to that. I mean, as someone who also no longer has a job, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, so I can't remember who said this. I was trying to remember because it's such a good quote. Uh, someone said the three most addictive substances on earth are heroin, carbohydrates, and a monthly salary. Can be such a frightening and such a, a magical step to step out of a place where, you know, there's someone else looking after your money into, I'm now responsible for my own income. I think what's interesting for me though, is that the idea of I'm fine because I have a job is also an illusion. I've been retrenched in my life. I I know that often that sense of safety that comes from I'm part of a company, it's fine, is also not true. We all at the end of the day, we have to build our own support networks, our own systems of, of security, I guess, in our lives. No one else can do that for you. You can't rely on another person. You can't rely on a company or a job. None of those, you can't rely on a government. I have a lot of Zimbabwean friends who will tell you horrible stories about how you can't rely on that. You have to know how to deal with the inevitable disasters that are going to happen in your life. They are going to happen. So for me, again, like a lot of what is really helpful, I think, is knowing your numbers, right? So there are a lot of numbers that I know off the top of my head. 
and I get a lot of comfort from them. I know exactly what my life costs every month off the top of my head. And I know how many months of that life I can fund from my own savings. And I know how much I can fund from my short-term savings and from my long-term savings. And I think knowing that number is also really empowering. And one of the things I've found really helpful over my life is learning to make that number as small as possible. So weirdly enough, I feel much wealthier now that I live in a tiny flat. I don't own a car anymore. I've brought my standard cost of living down very, very low. I've become a very frugal person, a very minimalist person. And that has given me such a sense of security because I have a lot of money that's been freed up for my passions, for my dreams, for traveling, for writing, for doing the things that are great. But also I know that the kind of bare bones of me feeling comfortable and safe, I know what that number is. And I've brought that number to a place where it's very in my control. So I think that that's been something really good. Something very practical that I found, also someone who now has a completely irregular income, is uh, I pay myself a salary. So I get all of my income into a savings account, very high interest savings account. Um, and I let it kind of build up as a bit of a buffer because there are lean months, there are fruitful months. But I find that difficult to wrap my head around that feast and famine thing. So I actually pay myself a salary out of my own account. So I try and smooth it out as much as possible. And I sort of adjust it about once a year. Weirdly enough, I, for the last several years, I've adjusted it down every year, which feels so empowering because I know that more and more of that money is going to stuff that I care about, not things that just make it feel like it's vanishing. Yeah. Yeah. So Sam, here's a question for you. Does money make you happy? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I've been quite broke. <laughs> so <laughs> definitely not having money made me miserable, but that's not quite the same thing. Right. Um, I think that, you know, if you take a thousand rand and you give it to someone who's homeless, it really will make a difference in their life. It really will have an impact on their happiness because we've built a world where not having money is an incredibly dangerous, painful thing that makes you very vulnerable. But if you took the same a thousand rand and you gave it to like, I don't know, Patrice Mozepe or uh, Richard Virgin, active guy, whatever, you know, some rich person. You gave it to Patrice Mazzeppe. That same 1,000 Rand is going to have no noticeable difference on their life. So I do think there is a relationship between money and happiness, but I don't think it's a straight line that goes up forever. I think it's a line that goes up and then flattens. And I think the point at which it flattens is a much lower point than people think. The research on this, I actually, I have the UK number as well. Have my trusty book. Thank you. The South African number I know is 38,000 rand a month. Beyond that amount of income per month, more money does not have any noticeable difference in your happiness. Number in the UK, I will tell you. Da, 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 da. Also from your TED talk, I remember that when you were looking at this um, and Sam's got a really interesting TED talk, how to buy a private island. Um, but you said that the next like significant factor of happiness is actually your, your commute. commute. That's a big one. Sorry. The number, the UK number is 5,000 pounds a month income per person. Okay. So I've still got to work some work yeah. to do there. Yeah. So it's, it's, not, it's not nothing, but that is the point at which more money has no impact, right? It's, it's like way below that, more money has very little impact. 
yeah, so commutes, that's in the research. And then your commute is a huge one. So moving into a really tiny apartment that is five minutes from my office has been one of the best things I've ever done for my happiness. Also, I walk through a park on the way to work every day. There are squirrels, there are babies. It's just happiness in an experience. It's so lovely. Yeah, not spending time commuting is a big one. I know that can be very hard depending on where you live. But I think that this is a really important thing is that no financial decision is made in isolation, which is why it's impossible to give another person specific financial advice. It's impossible for me to say to you, you shouldn't own a car, you shouldn't do whatever, because your context is different to mine. Someone's context, because I think also one of the things that really really brings us joy and meaning is our connectedness to other people, which means that unfortunately, for many people, they are happier living in more expensive cities than they would be living in cheaper cities. I mean, that's the biggest thing you can do to really bring down your lifestyle expenses is move to a very cheap place. But that's not the only variable in your life because your community is probably the single thing that has one of the biggest impacts on your happiness. So it's difficult, but all of these lifestyle decisions are connected to each other. The job that you choose to do has an impact on where you can live, which has an impact on how you commute there, which has an impact on the people and the community around you and the things you do for fun with them. All of these things are so, so interconnected. So questions about money are always bigger than just budgeting. They're questions of lifestyle design, which again means like it is impossible to give specific advice to any other person. And it's impossible to take someone else's model and just apply it to yourself as well. I think, unfortunately, this is work that we're all going to be doing over our whole lives, you know, to try and find the best way to be happy. I make less money now than I have in most of the last decade. And I am the happiest because I spend, I'm very rich in terms of time now. I, I haven't had what I think of as a traditional job for, I'd say, three years now. I spend my time writing, speaking to people and building things that I care about in the world. And that makes me feel incredibly rich. I can only afford to do that because I saved and invested rigorously. And basically I say I, I had to become my own sugar daddy. I realized no one else was going to be my own sugar daddy. So I had to be that person. And I had to fund this life that I want. But it was incredibly simple to do. I'm surprised and amazed how simple it was to become wealthy in the ways that matter to me, which is in time, in freedom and in independence. Yeah. And it sounds like what you're saying is that we often will define wealth in terms of like net worth or whatever that might be. But I think the most empowering thing for people to do is to create their unique concepts of wealth. And ultimately that's connecting like with the whole kind of theme of what we often talk about on the podcast is really connecting back to your heart and what's important to you and your values. Exactly. And that's different for everyone. For some people, like your currency is like time to spend with your family. Some people it's like, adventures and unrootedness like that. Some people that makes them really happy. It makes me miserable. I need my little house, my little home. I need my cat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Me too. I've got to care. You've got to find you've got to find your own thing. I mean I think that's what's difficult about giving financial advice to other people. I mean I don't really think of myself, I guess, as someone who gives financial advice. I'm someone who is very nosy and talks to other people about their financial lives. But there is no plan. There is no 45 page to-do list that you can pick up and have a happy life. You have to craft it for yourself. There are principles and there are things that we can learn from research about 
you know, things that tend to matter and things that tend to not. But ultimately, all of us, I think, have to do the own work of making ourselves happy. Money is a part of that, but it's about the decisions that we make and they're all connected. Mm. Um, So a book that I have read recently, which you might be familiar with, it's called Open Up, The Power of Talking About Money. And so much of what you say resonates so much with this book. Like it's really phenomenal. I'm excited to read your book to see how it connects. And one of the things that she says is that we, and it relates to what you were saying earlier about your mom and not speaking about money and it's being this very shameful thing is that we talk about everything in mm-hmm. society, but we don't talk about the money and the numbers. Yeah. And there's such empowerment about talking to other people. So when you say, um, you're very nosy and you talk to other people about their spending, what is the general reaction that comes up? Is there a lot of shame or is there a lot of guilt or people do not want to reveal what they're earning so in terms much. of specific numbers? Yeah. And why do you think that oh, is? So much. So Gabby Dunn, who's one of my favorite financial writers, did this exercise or this thing where she went to a bunch of strangers in restaurants and she asked them what their favorite sex position was. And people started going like, oh, reverse cowgirl, doggy, whatever, like, they got very graphic. And then she said, ask the same people um, how much money was in their bank account right now. And they were like, oh, how, <laughs> how rude. <laughs> I mean, I think that's entirely it. It's so difficult to talk about money. And it's interesting when you, you try and probe why, like, what do you think is the bad thing that's going to happen? I think it's because there's so much weird ego and status stuff that's applied to money as like an independent thing in our society, right? So, you know, I think, Anna, you were saying like, it's not just net worth, you know, wealth isn't isn't just net worth. Like, I think that part of the problem is that we treat money as though it's like a scorekeeping system for your success in society Mm. and money in a very like limited way. You know, we think of people who can afford certain markers of success, you know, as being worthy people. And the amount of money that you earn, I think is one of those markers that we see parts of society see as being scorekeeping. Again, it's so weird because those numbers taken out of context don't really tell you anything about someone's life. Like, you know, there are people who earn so much money, eye-watering amounts of money, but they spend that much money again every month, you know? So are those people wealthy? They are still one paycheck away from homelessness if they are not saving as much as someone earning a 10th of what they're earning. Out of context, these things don't actually tell us anything, but we do allow it to be so full of of shame and judgments. You know, I think sometimes we're afraid of telling other people what we earn because we think maybe that means if I earn little, maybe that means I'm not worth much you know, and the converse of like, people can be embarrassed. Like I don't actually deserve what I'm earning. There's so many weird mind games. And because we don't talk about it, I think it's also a bit of a sinister thing, which is that a lot of companies and corporations really discourage people from talking about what they earn. And that serves the companies. You know, when I was working at a big company, it's actually illegal in South Africa to put in your rules that you can't discuss your salary, but They did everything short of doing that to make it clear that it wasn't okay to do that. And when I sort of graduated through the company or whatever and became, eventually had a management role and I started to learn what different people were earning, I realized that what was happening was an incredible amount of like 
totally random discrepancies based on gender and race, definitely as factors, but also just pushiness. Like some people were really pushy about negotiating salaries that would end up being three times higher than someone else doing the same job as them for completely random reasons. And I think that this is what's so nuts is I think that your income specifically is such a poor reflection of the value that you give to society. It's a poor reflection of your worth, of the job you do. But I think there is this, this idea that it does. And so I think there's a lot of fear about talking about it. Spending is harder as well because people judge themselves so much, especially as I say with like the nice spending. There's a lot of guilt mm. around spending money on yourself. But we, yeah, we don't talk enough about what things cost either. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the whole thing of money being so connected to your value system, and I think that's what makes it so almost shameful to share, because if suddenly you realize that the person next to you is earning 10 times what you're earning, but yet they are not spending on giving to charity, whereas that's really a big core value for you, it can shift that relationship between you because you suddenly feel like your values and your identities don't align anymore. So there's a big like relationship component that happens when we speak about money in an open Mm, way. Yeah, for sure. Money has become like this, just this very difficult and complex layer over social relationships, I think, you know, and like also it's hard because we live in such an unjust system. And, you know, I think part of talking to people about money, it's always a very personal thing. It's always like, what can I do as an individual in the system to live a more free and more fulfilled life? But you can't do that to the expense of making the system better. And I think also how we make the system better is we need to talk more about how unjust it is and share and be honest. If we think, you know, there was a time in my life, I feel like I was being horrifically overpaid for the value that I was adding to society. And I was spending it like an idiot on weird shit I didn't even care about because I was a total, total idiot, you know? I think it's important that we talk about that also. Like we shouldn't have a system where some people are earning money for doing things that are actually really like antisocial behaviors. You know, people work in finance and advertising and fossil fuel industries, whatever. None of these things are actually about your value to the world. You know, income is just this weird side effect of capitalism and capitalism is weird (laughs) and we've got to fix it. But we can't do that by just like, you know, quietly never talking about it because it's all good. One of the personal challenges that I've worked through or slash am still working through is when I started my own business was being able to charge Mm. money for my time because I grossly used to undercharge for my time, but then I would just end up in scarcity, overworked and resentful. And I think there are so many people doing amazing work in the world. I think of yoga teachers as well. I qualified as a yoga teacher at the beginning of this year and I just teach yoga for fun outside of my, my other work. I'm probably for the time I put into every class getting paid less yeah. than minimum wage. But the impact that that's having on people is really beautiful. You know, it's fine for me because I don't need to earn a full-time yeah. living from it. 
it's sometimes hard in this world when we're struggling with our own self-worth and we're not valuing ourselves to then believe that we are worthy of for asking. Sure. Yeah. For and it is a problem because the prices of things, it's so arbitrary, you know, like the discrepancies between what different people in as yoga teachers are in, you know, in one industry doing a very similar kind of work, that discrepancy is so huge. So to put that weight on an individual and say, you know, how good do you think you are in the scheme of things? It's just, you know, it's impossible. It's insane. It's so hard. I think what has been helpful for me is really continually reminding myself, this sounds so morbid, but I pretty much remind myself constantly that I am going to die. (laughs) And so, you know, what I've realized is like, there is a lot of work that I like doing, but I wouldn't do it. There's something else I would rather be doing with my time, probably, like rather, considering that I only have a very limited number of hours left in my entire life, you know, that I could be spending cuddling my cat or my partner uh, or going for a hike on the mountain or whatever. So how I've started thinking about this actually is what is the amount of money that you would have to pay me for me to not do that other thing that I'd rather be doing? You know, honestly, pricing for a lot of professional services is so arbitrary anyway that you can pretty much just figure out what that number is for you. The thing is that that means you've got to be okay, though, with sometimes people saying, no, that is too much. And that's okay. And you've got to be okay with saying, that's okay. I'm going to go spend that hour cuddling my cat then. Just recognizing the system doesn't make sense. There is no way to find an actual correct answer to how much is every hour of your time worth. You have to therefore create your own personal currency of what is it worth for you to not spend that hour doing the other thing. I love that so much. And I'd say that it's taken a lot of work to get to where I am now. And there are even days when I still question, you know, the way that I do things, but like the way that you've just kind of summarized it and what, like, what else would I want to do with my time and what's worth mm. it? That's a lovely Good. way of putting it. But also we have to talk to each other more, right? Talk to other yoga teachers. What yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sam, I just want to ask you a question. It's maybe more of a bit of an existential question, but when you say you continuously remind yourself of I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And I think that's really useful mm. for all aspects of life, like, you know, forgiveness and whatever it is, like just remind yourself that you're not here forever. Mm. But does that mentality ever kind of push you over into the fact of I'm going to die soon. So I may as well just like spend all this money and like go on the trips and do the (laughs) Also like, especially when I talk to young people, like they're so conscious of the climate catastrophe. Do you know how many of them I talk to about investing for retirement and they're like, ah, but the world is going to be burning. Who cares? No, for sure. I, like, I think you have to be careful to not let it slip into catastrophic thinking. I think that's absolutely true. I don't think there's a simple answer to that question, but it's a bloody profound one, really. I mean, because <laughs> it's such a fine balance. And the reality is you don't know exactly when you're going to die. And also being old and not having money. And again, this does come to this thing of money does not make you happy, but not having money definitely makes you unhappy. Is <laughs> worth remembering. And, you know, statistically, it's very likely that people born now will live into their 80s or 90s, depending on where you are and general, you know, other things. But especially listeners to this podcast, because they're all so healthy and exactly 135. And the reality is, as much as you might want to still be working, and work is something we do throughout our lives, it gives our lives meaning, but work and jobs are different. Work that you do for money 
it does get much harder to do work for money after the age of 60, unfortunately, because we live in a really strange, weird society that doesn't value age. It is probably going to be much harder for you to earn an income after the age of, say, 60, which means potentially you could be retired, whatever that means, for as long as you worked. And so it's really important to always think about that as well. This is where investing is really powerful in understanding investing. Because if you try to imagine funding a 40-year retirement from a 40-year working career without adding compound interest into this, it essentially means you would have to live off half of every paycheck because you're having to stretch it for as many years on the tail end. And very few people are able to do that. So this is why investing is really powerful because investing means you don't have to do that. Investing changes those numbers for you, which is why it's really worth taking that afternoon, reading those books, understanding those four or five financial concepts and making a plan and doing that work. And are those concepts, sorry to interrupt, are those concepts covered in your book? But not only in my book. Like, I mean, you know, I think my book is very much aimed to be the first money book you ever pick up. It's designed specifically for young people and it's designed for people who would never want to read a book about money specifically. It's filled with jokes. It's filled with pictures because I was the kind of young person who felt like I would never buy a money book. How ridiculous. No, that just wasn't that kind of person. So I definitely tried to write a book that, yeah, it's the first money book you've ever bought. But so you've got to find something that I think is right for where you are in your journey. There are so many books about money. There's so much information online. A lot of it is garbage, but a lot of it is great. A lot of other books like Gabby Dunn's book, Bad With Money is also fantastic. It's very like big picture view. Rich Dad, Poor Dad is a classic. It's problematic in some ways, but it's a really good summary of the basic principles. There's, there's so many. I think you've just got to find someone who resonates with you, but go and learn those concepts, I think. Um, So Sam, if you were to give three top tips for someone listening of ways or something that they can do today, this week, this month, or this quarter to get a little bit more in control or on top of, or feeling more empowered about their spending plans or budgeting or whatever, what would those top three tips be? So the first tip is understand your own spending. We spoke about that before. Second tip I think would be to understand the cost of your debt if you have debt. And the third step would be to understand the cost of your investments if you have investments. So let me expand on those. So I'll start at the back end. When we look at fees on investments, right? Most of the time when we invest in products, most people don't feel very confident because we don't think about this stuff all the time. So the tendency, I guess, is to try to ask someone else to make it their problem, right? So we give our money to fund managers. We, we put them with a big company who can invest them for us. We buy a product that seems to have the right kind of name, but you know, very few of us, I think, have done enough homework that we really feel like we understand how that money is making money. We really understand what it's doing. It sort of just feels like it's gone into a black box and we're trusting. The problem is that there are, in every financial system, in every country, there are a lot of really difficult and sensitive systems that we've built into them, where it's very easy to accidentally buy a product that has higher fees on it than are good for you over the long term. And these fees, when you look at them on investments, might look like 1% or 2% or 3%, and we're like, what is 3%? Who cares? But the problem is that they compound, those fees compound and can end up costing you half or three quarters or 
a large chunk of your investments over a long term, which is money that you're spending, you know, you're buying some banker in Audi rather than funding the things that the investment is for. So I think just really taking the time to understand what your money is invested into and do you understand it? Do you understand how it's growing? Is important and also what the fees are it can make a huge difference. And then debt is the other thing. So when I was 24, I think I had this job in the ad industry. It was oof, ridiculous. Um, and I was in a client service role. So I had to go and see clients and I had this ridiculous 10 year old course of life that was covered in bumper stickers and it smelled of cigarette smoke. I was a very irresponsible 24 year old and it really did not help my impression of this is a responsible person you can trust with your campaigns, right? So I thought, okay, what I need to do is I need to buy a fancy car so people take me seriously. This was my foolproof logic. And I knew how much budget I had. So I knew, okay, I could spend this many thousand rand a month. What can I get for this car? I mean, for this amount of money, what car can I get? So I went to a car dealership and I just at random chose one because I knew nothing about cars. And an hour later, I walked out with a new car, <laughs> which by the way, I've spent longer choosing pairs of jeans <laughs> than I buying this car at 24. And the problem was the guy who sold it to me, very good at his job, right? really kept me focused on the amount I would be paying for it every month. And what he hid from me is how much the car would end up costing overall. Because by structuring debts over a long period of time, by adding a residual, a balloon payment, doing all of these things, what he did is he managed to work down that monthly repayment number so it fits into my budget. But of course, the more that you structure debt in that way, the more expensive something ends up being overall. And years later, when I had figured out money much better, I went back and looked at how much I ended up paying for that car. That car ended up being twice as expensive as it was. And I couldn't afford it at its price that it was. And that was a piece of debt that haunted me for six years, I would say. That piece of debt took me a long time to really pay off and, and get out of. So debt is also something that it's very easy to wave your magic wand and hand wave and look, look, it's magic. It's fine. Look over there. It's like that game magicians play with the cups. You know, it's like, look over there. Blah, blah, blah. Where is it? It's gone. <laughs> so actually spending some time to understand the debts you have, what your interest rates actually are on those debts. And there are so many calculators online. There's one on my website as well that listeners can download. It's very easy to use where you can plug in your numbers and it will tell you what your debt is actually going to cost you at the end of the day. So I think those three actions really just put you, you know, are, are three very practical, very immediate things that are all for me part of that first part of the process, which is the confront everything stage, right? Understand what's going on. And then from there, you kind of work into, okay, what is my plan? That's a whole other thing. But I think just the first thing is you just need to actually understand what's happening. So those are three things you can do tomorrow. Awesome. Cool. Thank you. So can you just, if there's anything else that you want to mention or if you want to let people know where they can find you and how they can order your book and cool. just give us a little bit about. Yeah. That. So my book is available pretty much everywhere now. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon. You can buy it in bookstores in Europe and South Africa. I don't think it's out in America, but it's in Australia. It's in Russia. It's, it's all over. The easiest place to find it is my website, which is likeafuckinggrownups.com. Also, I have a Facebook is the devil. It's undermining democracies. But <laughs> I have this wonderful <laughs> Facebook group called the League of Fucking Grownups. And it is actually the collection of just the nicest people on the internet. 
And it's a place where if you have questions that you feel you can't talk to your friends or family about, come onto this group and there are hundreds of extremely kind and lovely strangers who will be happy to listen to your questions and we are all figuring it out together in that community. So it's a great resource. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time and for chatting to us. I know that I've picked up a lot of good, insightful things about money and spending and planning. So thank you so awesome. much. Thanks for letting me chat, guys. Thanks so much, Sam. Speak to you Bye. soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Kombucha and Color. If you have enjoyed or been inspired by our conversations today, please leave a five-star review on Stitcher or iTunes. Don't forget to share with friends and family. This will help other women find inspiration to live life bright. We'd love to connect with you on social media. Come find me, Shay, by searching Shay Dyer Yoga on Facebook or Instagram. You can find me, Anna, by searching Anna Marsh on Facebook or Instagram. And remember, you can always refer to the links in the show notes. See you next week. Hi, it's Anna. Ever since I was a child, I wanted to study the power that food can have on our health. When I started practicing as a nutritional therapist a decade ago, I realized that what is just as important is the relationship that we have with food. This is very often a mirror for the relationship we have with ourselves. Through my own personal journey and health challenges, I was forced to dig deeper and understand things that go beyond just our physical bodies. I learned the importance of working with the whole person to create a balanced body, mind, heart, and soul. I'm now passionate about using my diverse toolbox to help women slow down, take better care of themselves, and ultimately cultivate a life which is a reflection of self-love. If you feel like this is speaking to you, I created a 43-page guide, Nine Steps to Love, Nourish, and Connect with Your Body to create an energized life with a happy heart and soul. You can download it for free and join my Grounded Goddess community for even more inspiration by visiting groundedgoddess.co.uk forward slash nine, the number, hyphen, steps. That's groundedgoddess.co.uk forward slash nine, the number hyphen steps, S-T-E-P-S. I'm looking forward to seeing you in the community.